Hello, and welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on October 1st, 2021. Tom Nezick is the general manager of Pinelands Nursery and Supply. He became interested in agriculture and the nursery industry as a child when he planted his first pussy willow at age two. As second generation nurserymen, his parents, Don and Suzanne Nezick, started the nursery in 1984. Tom's primary focus is bringing a business-minded approach to growing, selling, and marketing native plants. Pinelands Nursery is proud to supply local ecotype trees, shrubs, grasses, forbs, and seed to the Mid-Atlantic and the Northeast grown from wild collected seed. Most of the plants they grow are planted in ecological restoration projects from Virginia to Massachusetts, creating landscapes that attract pollinators, curb climate change, prevent flooding, and create wildlife habitat. Tom is a member of the New Jersey Nursery and Landscape Association Board of Directors, Atlantic Seed Association Executive Committee, and is the Secretary of the New Jersey Farm Bureau, Young Farmers and Agriculture Professionals. He also operates an e-commerce garden center with his wife, Melissa, and recently had their first child. Tom also hosts the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Tom. We're delighted you could be with us this afternoon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Tom, how did you get into the business of uh, growing native plants in beautiful central New Jersey? So I was literally born into it. Technically, the uh, the nursery, Pinelands Nursery, is my parents' first child, and then I was second, and then my uh, younger brother, he's third. But uh, they started the business in 1984. I came along in 1989, and really from day one, I was using plants and planting plants and really just was born into it. But I didn't realize how important it was until much, much later in life. I was just, I figured everyone got the opportunity to do this stuff. And you started out, uh, or the folks at least did, uh, with berry bushes. Is that right? Blueberry and... Yeah. So it was, uh, my dad originally was working for the New Jersey Forest Service. And my mom was working for a company up in New York City. And uh, they both graduated from Rutgers Rutgers has an, or used to have an agricultural field day. Now it's just Rutgers Day, but it used to be Rutgers Ag Field Day. And they'd invite some alumni to come back and sell some goods. My dad was working again for the New Jersey Forest Service out of New Lisbon, New Jersey, which is in the Pine Barrens. And uh, if you know about the Pine Barrens, it's a really big blueberry growing area. So he was friends with a lot of these blueberry farmers in the area and said, well, why don't I pot up some blueberries? I can get the plants from all my friends and I'll bring them to this Ag Field Day at Rutgers, and I'll sell them there. And they sold out really, really fast, and even had some landscapers that were coming and saying, hey, I want to buy these because I want to use them on installation. And uh, eventually that turned into a a full-time business. They're selling blueberry bushes to garden centers, 
And then those garden centers, well, can you grow some other things like raspberries and grapes and currants and those kind of things? So he started to grow those as well. And, uh, and meanwhile, my mom was basically funding this entire project. <laughs> I know my, uh, my grandparents on my mom's side, they did not think this was going to work. And my, that's one of the things my dad is like really proud of that he, he showed them <laughs> that it could grow into something way bigger than they ever thought. But she was the financier. She was working full time. Um, now starting a young family with me and my brother coming along. He came, he was born in 1990 and she was funding everything through her job. And my dad was just making a little bit of chump change here and there, but it was growing. Eventually what kind of scared them was flower time who had, they were now selling in a few dozen different garden centers that got bought by Frank's garden center, which is also out of business now. And they went from having a few dozen customers, primarily in New Jersey, but some in Delaware, some in Eastern Pennsylvania, to now they're having to make deliveries to like 100 garden centers going into Long Island, a little bit further in upstate New York, further west in PA. It really expanded their footprint, quadrupled their footprint in a matter of a day. It was like a, a sign of a pen, and now they had all, all this more demand that they had to fulfill. And they really were just dealing with that one customer. So they said, well, what are some other things we can do? My dad, having worked in the Pine Barrens, was interested in a lot of the native plants that were there. He started going to some of these native plant society meetings for the native plant society in New Jersey and started growing some of that on the side for more some of the, the landscapers that did buy from him. And that just kind of blossomed. Uh, there was some legislation that came into play. They had the Clean Water Act where there were regulations saying you couldn't destroy wetlands. And if you did, you had to replace them. Well, there's nowhere to buy that kind of plant material. So my dad and, and mom being as bright as they are said, well, if they need to replace the plants and there's nowhere to buy the plants, if we grow them, they legally have to buy them from us. There's, there's a little work, work around there, but that was kind of the, the brainchild behind it is no one was, was doing this, at least on the East Coast, or very, very few people. So if you needed to do a wetland mitigation or, or some kind of restoration, you had to go to Pinelands Nursery because that was the place that had the plants. And now there's dozens, just in New Jersey, there's probably uh, over a dozen native plant nurseries in, in our state. And you go into Eastern Pennsylvania and Maryland, Delaware, New York, there's probably hundreds now. But when they started, it was really them and then another nursery called Environmental Concern, which was down in Maryland. And then once you got to the Midwest, there was a few more that popped up, but it was a very, very small niche in the nursery industry. You know, what's really interesting about you, that comment, mm -hmm. um, when we had a landscape company way back in the 70s, uh, my former husband and I, we would have to get native plants from California. That's where we had to ship them in from. So if we wanted anything, you couldn't get it here. And you're right. The only thing that was being uh, sold were uh, wildflowers, Vicks wildflower gardens um, off of the main line. And uh, you, you're right. You couldn't find a... You could not find a pitch pine. You couldn't find a Virginia pine if you wanted to. So they really filled in a, a hole that was, there was demand for it. Not a huge demand, but there was demand and there weren't people doing it. And they filled that void and really formed like lifelong friendships because of that, those business relationships they started. So how long did it take the folks to kind of uh, what do they call it, uh, re-engineer the business or uh, shut down and restart and go into selling natives? It was probably in the, the early, late 80s, early 90s, right around the time my brother and I were, were born. Um, 
by like 1995, I think they were completely native outside of a handful of, of contract products. They're still, at that time, they were really small nursery. So someone came and said, hey, I want you to grow some plants. And uh, the one that comes to mind was um, the Irish famine park in New York City. I'm probably screwing up the name of the park, but there's basically an Irish famine memorial that was built in New York City. And they wanted native plants to Ireland and plants that were native there. And they knew we grew native plants and well, they couldn't really turn down that paycheck. So they grew plants for that memorial. And it's a beautiful memorial. I've seen pictures and uh, it really turned out great. But that, it was probably like the early nineties when they went primarily to uh, New Jersey and mid-Atlantic native plants. And then from there, it's it just gotten more and more strict in a so way. So one thing that fascinates me and uh, the uh, tour that you were giving of the nursery with the uh, Magnolia Virginiana and Nyssa and Red Cedar is how did you come around to getting on board with all the propagation technology? Because, I mean, I've never even thought about how do you propagate a Red Cedar? Yeah, so it was um, another thing that's very different than a lot of the horticultural and nursery industry with the propagation is it's basically all done from seed. There's a, a handful of exceptions, but probably 95% of what we grow, we're growing from locally collected seed. Uh, and we have our propagator used to work for, for Princeton Nurseries before they closed and a fellow named Glenn Rogers. I've been told through other people that he was in line to be like the next great Princeton propagator when he was working there. And he's someone where you can say, we need to grow this plant and you give him the seed and he figures out a way pretty quick. There hasn't been anything that we've stumped them with yet. But a lot of it, really, when you're growing things from seed is you just got to replicate how things are done in nature. There's things like Baptisia that they don't really germinate right away. It's got really hard seed coat. So it's either breaking down that seed coat a little bit faster, or if you want to be more delicate, you're stratifying it for a longer period of time, like would happen in nature. It's going to sit dormant in the soil for sometimes three or four years. I've even heard uh, some meadows where they found where they didn't germinate for for seven years, which is going to sit dormant. And then, so we actually have a seed cooler where we'll uh, let things sit dormant for sometimes it's like up to three years before we'll actually use it to germinate. And we've measured how successful, okay, if we germinate it or try and we stratify it for a long time, we try and germinate after year one. Uh, and that didn't really come up well. Oh, year two came up a little better. Year three, oh, we're getting 99% germination at that point. But that's all credit to Glenn and then uh, some of his predecessors when I was still a young, young kid. We did an interview with uh, the Global Botanic Gardens Conservation Group, and they were saying that the problem is that many of the plants, we don't know how they germinate. Yeah. They, we, do, we just don't understand the the uh, dormancy mm -hmm. require or the dormancies that they have, whether they have double dormancy, whether they need a 100-day stratification or whether they need scarification. That's an open science still. Oh, yeah. So we know how to germinate everything that we grow. And once you get outside of that, there's just a lot of things we haven't figured out yet. And then there's some things that maybe we haven't figured out and we said, oh, you know what, we, there's not enough demand for it, so why, why are we even trying anymore? The, the reason we do everything from seed is, especially with, since it's all native plants, is our primary customer base, just about all of our customer base is in the mid-Atlantic and Northeast. And one of the things we really pride ourselves on is having uh, local ecotype seed sources for all these plants. So we try and, well, that's one of the reasons we send out a crew to go and collect the seed ourselves because we know exactly where it came from. A lot of times we know that those populations have been there 
for a very long time. And it's not 100%. Every once in a while, you have someone they want a certain species, but they they have a big order with us and they want us to grow everything. And we don't have seed for that one thing. We'll, we'll bring in seed from somewhere else to, to fulfill the order. But uh, we try and do, like I said, as many as things as we can. There's some things you just, you can't. But we want to make sure we're fulfilling our customers with stuff that's from close by to where it's going to end up. Just because there's some science that's kind of pointing in that direction. When you have something that's a local ecotype, it has a better chance of surviving in those conditions. The other reason we use the seed is you get um, more genetic diversity. So we're dealing, we're, our plants are going to these large restoration projects where they're not just planting one or two, they're usually planting 20, 30, 100, a few thousand sometimes with some of the herbaceous species, it'll be hundreds of thousands of the same thing. And they aren't looking for, if you plant one tree, well, that tree better live. If you're planting a thousand trees, oh, I'd be happy if 800 of them lived. And that's how they kind of draw some of this out. Because sometimes it's just going to be in the wrong spot or you're going to have deer damage or rabbit damage or uh, there's an insect that passes through. We saw it at the nursery this year. There's some invasive insect that is kind of nomadic and just came through and hit all our oaks and there's holes in all our oak leaves. And they're trying to be contacted someone who's researching it and they're really excited that they found a spot on the map where they actually could find these insects. Yeah, so we want our the population to survive and sometimes when you have the genetic diversity, there's gonna be things that'll be a little bit better fit in that area. It might not be all 1000 trees, but if it's 800, 850, 900, that's what we're, our goal is. And a quick question about, and for our listeners, and the idea of collecting seed, especially on, on public land, what do you have to go through as a grower to be able to get licensing to even collect seed because it is illegal just so our listeners know it is illegal oh to collect yeah, yeah it is, it's, on it's definitely it's illegal to go and just collect wherever you want um a lot of it is traced back to my dad being in the new jersey forest service so he was in his 20s and, and early 30s when he's in that role and a lot of his peers were in that same age well now that they're they were in their 50s and 60s. Now my dad's retired. He's 67. And they're starting, starting to phase out. We're actually running into some issues because of that. But he was friends with all these people who had moved up the chain and either were heads of part of state parks or, or local parks or people who were working for USDA and NRCS. And they kind of branched out. So he had all these inroads from his early career as they'd moved up the, the food chain in their respective uh, areas that so he could call and say, hey, we know that there's some of this tree on the... Uh, the Franklin Parker Preserve down in the Pine Barrens. Do you mind if we go and collect some? And they would say, oh yeah, no, not a problem. We would always get permission. That's number one is you always have to get permission. Uh, there's a handful of places where we have to pay um, like a fee. So usually it's like a dock fee for some of the aquatic species we'll grow and collect is you have to pay for like a boat ramp or just an access to that wildlife management area or, or those kind of things. And then some of it's on private property as well. And some of these private properties are actually owned by some of these big nonprofits, the Nature Conservancy is one. Um, there's, uh, I'm blanking on the name, the folks who own the, the Franklin Parker, Parker Preserve, we're really good friends with them and they'll buy plants from us. So it uh, behooves them to actually let us go on and collect seed because now they know, hey, we're planting this in the Pine Barrens and we're getting seed from the exact site where this stuff is gonna go. Mm -hmm. 
So they are really, really interested in getting that instead of getting something from Maryland or, or North Carolina or Texas or Carol, California, somewhere else. Now they know it's from a genetic source that's usually feet from where these things are going to get planted. So, Tom, are you able to, um, with your collection, seed collection, are you able to run to the very tip of uh, Cape May and all the way north to the New Jersey, North, New York border? Are you? Yeah, we can. Um, we we don't every year. A lot of the stuff we'll get is probably within 25 miles of where we go. The one thing, not not a tree, but a, a really important plant is called Spartina altoniflora, a salt marsh plant that only grows in the tidal area, basically from mean high tide to mean low tide, Nova Scotia all the way down to Texas. Um, it, there's a little break in southern Florida where the mangroves take over. It's one of the only things that can tolerate that daily flooding and then salt conditions. Well, that's something we grow sometimes a million plugs or more of it a year, a little tiny two-inch plug, but that will travel a little bit further to get. Uh, we have some private collectors who will actually get us some seed from the Chesapeake Bay so that they'll send it up to us and we'll grow it. And if we get a big order in the Chesapeake Bay, we'll send that seed source back down. But we'll, the last couple of years, we've been focusing one site, one site in South Jersey for that plant and then one in North Jersey. Occasionally, we'll go and even do... Barnegat Bay, Delaware Bay, we'll have like five or two. And then you've got to balance all those skews on our end because <laughs> we don't want to mix up those plants. But uh, but yeah, the majority is from probably like 25 minutes north or, or half an hour north to half an hour south of us. What about the white cedar? I know that that was in danger after Hurricane Sandy had brought in salt into the, the actual cedar water in uh, New Jersey. Uh, how is that doing? And are you selling a lot of them? Because I haven't really seen a lot of people selling it. And uh, one of the reasons you wouldn't see a lot of people selling it now is it's because a lot of those stands, they couldn't survive the salinity. A lot of those plants died. So we've found it pretty hard to get seed. We see tons and tons of demand for that plant and we just can't grow enough because the seed sources aren't there. Uh, and that's one of the challenges is we're used to going to get seed in a certain place every year and then gets bought by someone new. A house goes up, a warehouse goes up, something is there. Well, now we have to relocate that plant and, and find a different place to do it. One of the strategies we actually took to combat that a little bit is we have some natural areas around our nursery. So we've planted those with some of the things that are maybe a little bit harder to find. First, so that we have that backup plan. We can go and collect there, and it's from, again, a known seed source. We know where we got the original seed from, and then we can collect it instead of sending a crew out half an hour away, and they're stopping at a Wawa on the way there and a Wawa on the way back. If the seed's there, that's great. The seed's not there. Well, now you send five guys out to Wawa twice. It also is a really good indicator for when the seed's ready. So now you don't have that miss. They, and uh, we phenotypically will notice, hey, when the seed is ready at our farm, it's maybe a week or two away where we usually go and get that plant. Or maybe it's a week or two earlier, and now you're, you're beating the birds, you're beating some of the other stuff. And then the other thing that's a moral obligation is just not taking too much. We won't strip an area of seed. We try and take, depending on the year, usually around like 10 to 15%. We leave a lot, like a lot of seed. And when you're new to that seed group, when you're going out to collect seed, it's easy to want to be greedy and take everything you can, but you got to remember, this is a natural area and it's supposed to reseed. The ground needs this more than, than we do. 
So it's kind of like a little bit of give and take and, and connection with the, the land when you do that. There's not a lot of people who are familiar with that unless you are either living within the Pine Barrens or living in a natural area where you're collecting seed or um, you, underst you understand that there are plants that are endangered as you were talking about. You don't want to take everything. You want to make sure that you leave. You always leave. I remember the uh, gentleman who uh, at Winter Tour, the owner of Winter Tour, he used to say, I plant one for me, and I plant five, I plant one for me and four for everybody else who comes through. So that makes perfect sense. Just as a sidebar, uh, so Tom's business, uh, as Eve indicated at the outset of the show, is based in the Pinelands, which is central and south New Jersey. But right before the pandemic, I went with a friend on a tour of the Pinelands. And I just want to give a shout out to the group that led the tour, Pineland Adventures, because that tour blew my mind. I had no idea the history of the Pinelands, pre-white European arrival and moving forward and moving backwards. I mean, that it was loaded with big white oaks that quickly were processed into ship masts, the forging and processing for metals, charcoal. Uh, it, I've never stopped thinking about uh, what an amazing site it was, is, resource. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's an amazing place. And it's it's unfortunate that most people's interaction with the, the New Jersey Pine Barrens is going down Route 72 or 539 to go to Long Beach Island or another beach town because it looks a little bit boring. Yeah. You see the sand and you see the pine trees. I remember when I would go to the beach, oh, we know we're getting close when when you see that but uh yeah you really get in and you get you go around some of the the natural occurring bogs and you go in those those little tiny creeks and uh pinelands adventures is a great outfit they offer some really awesome canoe trips like through the mullica river and all these little hideaways and you see some of the really rare plants and the plant diversity and if you're a plant nut it's it's fantastic even if you're not it's still a really cool day out paddling around how many pine Native pines are there growing in the, in the uh, species-wise? Oh gosh, um, to be honest, I have I have no idea. Uh, I mean, it's maybe about a half a dozen or something. Yeah, it um, says four. Yeah, <laughs> four. There's four major yeah. ones, and then there's there's others. But yeah, uh, the the rigida, Pinus rigida, or the pitch pine is pretty much the the staple. And Pinus virginiana, which is the Virginia pine, or or the, they call it the poverty pine because it was, it grows on very poor soil. Those are the two major ones. Then there's, there's others too. I wanted to jump back also to the salinity discussion because a couple of years ago, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Frank Coomer, who does a good job covering trees and climate issues in the Delaware Valley and New Jersey, wrote a piece about the, uh, black pines in Salem County. He was very careful about not disclosing the exact location. I just wondered, uh, do you collect your Nyssa seed from any particular location? And do you ever see genetic variation with Nyssa? Uh, we we definitely see, like for color variation, we, we do. Off the top of my head, I don't know where we, we actually collect our, our Nyssa seed. That's a... Uh, and that's another thing with our, our propagator, um, Glenn. He's like he knows where all these places are, and sometimes he doesn't want to meet this guy. He doesn't want to tell you where they are. Yeah, he'd be he'd be a good person to talk to too. 
they're they're proprietary. They're proprietary, and you you don't you take a whole lifetime to scout for plants. You don't tell people where they are. Exactly. Yeah. I just recently found out that um, you can find uh, morel mushrooms in New Jersey. I kind of wrote them off and said that they aren't they don't exist here. Once you get into Pennsylvania, you can. And then I was talking to a guy, and he's like, oh, no, I have some spots. And I was trying to pick it out of him. He wouldn't give it to me. <laughs> of course not. Of course yeah. not. Well, and, you know, that's one of the things when you talk about foragers and things like that, that sometimes you can take people on a foraging thing, but then you go back and there's nothing there. It's because they take everything because they're breeding. Yeah. Yep, you have exactly. to be really mindful of that. But your tree growing operation how many different types of trees do you have in your nursery? How many different species? Just trees. It's probably, I want to say between 50 and 60. Total, now, our total catalog is close to 300, probably between 250 and 300 species. Now, we've cut down on that a little bit as time's gone on, and you find out, hey, this is, from a business side of things, you need to know what is actually going to sell at the same time, what a lot of these products are going to want for their restorations. It tends to be the, there's a core if it's going to be in the Pine Barrens, there's going to be a core group of species. If you're going into New York City, there's a core group of species. So we've refined that over the years. So, so you're looking at you're looking at plant palettes. You're not necessarily just looking at trees. You're looking at the shrubs that go with them, and you're looking for forbs and and uh, any other perennial type plant that would that would go along with that ecosystem. Is that correct? Exactly. And it was, again, it came down to my parents were one of the first people to, to start this kind of business. And so it wasn't a, a place where, oh, oh yeah, go to, oh, we'll sell you the trees, but go to this place because they'll have the, the grasses or, or flowers, whatever you want. That didn't exist. So they were really uh, horizontally integrated. Um, so much so that even some of the, uh, our, our nursery name is Pinelands Nursery, uh, but then we added and supply because we started carrying a lot of erosion control material because we kind of wanted to be like the Home Depot, the one-stop shop where you were, you have a restoration job, especially a wetland restoration job. You needed something to protect that open ground and hold the plants in place or hold the seed in place. Um, that's actually why we added seed to our product mix as well. We've started to cut back on the erosion control material because that's become so much more available. But, uh, but that was the real reason we were so horizontally integrated and vertically integrated in the space was just no one else, there's nowhere else to get this stuff. Yeah, in the, in the early 80s, you couldn't find any of the fascines or any of the, any of the material needed for repairing and restoration, for example. Um, we mm -hmm. did a lot in our township and you couldn't find the supplies. You had to make them. <laughs> you had to make your own living logs. And, yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Tom, I wanted to ask, because you had mentioned Princeton Nurseries, and we all mourn, you know, that they're not around anymore. You're cited pretty interestingly in the state. Do you feel pressure from developers as well? At our actual farm, um, not so much. Uh, so our main nursery is about 30 acres total, split up technically between two properties, one that my wife and I own, where we rent it to the, the nursery, um, and then... My parents had bought the main property, which is like 16 acres in the very beginning uh, when they moved down here from New Brunswick. Uh, my dad was actually teaching it. Uh, he's a, teaching at Rutgers for a little bit. He was teaching his dendrology class. And uh, this is where they moved. This is where they found a place to, to live. And because of, the, again, those connections on the Pine Barrens, 
some of the blueberry growers lived in this town of Columbus where, where I've grown up and live now. And uh, it's situated just outside the Pine Barrens, but my dad had known one of the blueberry growers and said, hey, it's a really cool place. And that's just happened to be where they found some property for sale. The, the seed farms we now have, um, where we're growing the wildflower and native grass seed, are, all, are both preserved farms. But I know a lot of the farms in our area are, I don't want to say under pressure, but um, there's developers who want to move in. And for the farmers, it's it's a big payday. I, I can't fault them for, for taking that, especially you don't have a, a daughter or son who wants to take over farm. Like, really, who would want to be a, a farmer nowadays? You're doing working 80-hour weeks for very, very little money. Sometimes, a lot of times, you're losing money to do it, at least in the state of New Jersey. So, yeah, I don't fault them for for taking the money and taking that payday. But, yeah, it's... It's interesting having grown up in central New Jersey because we've slowly seen the development creep further and further south. And now where we are in, in Columbus, it's like right on our doorstep. For a, a logistics standpoint, we're in an awesome spot. You're at the corner of the Pennsylvania Turnpike going into New Jersey. And the New Jersey Turnpike, you have uh, two, the 295 corridor runs right through our town. Uh, 206 goes south into the Pine Barrens and, and southern New Jersey. Like, oh, yeah, we're in at really a crosshairs for a lot of this this major development. Yeah, one might say the driver's seat. <laughs> yeah, I wish it was the driver's seat. I think a lot of these developers are still in the, the driver's seat when it comes to their huge, huge budgets. And then you have a, a township that's strapped for cash. But Right. When you and Fran and your staff are considering what to grow, are you seeing any species that you feel uh, that are struggling with some of the uh, weather pattern changes, either extreme heat, extreme drought. We, you know, as an arborist on this side of the river, Eva and I are always talking about the species that just, you know, are really starting to struggle. Mm -hmm. uh, sugar maple, red oak, Austrian pine, our native birch trees, uh, and of course, uh, uh, our state tree, the Canadian hemlock. You know, they're, they're, unless you can pump additional resources at them in terms of fertilizer and pesticide, you can't really keep them. Is that impacting your business? Uh, it's starting to. We're definitely seeing that. Sh it's something we're, we're conscious about is as these ranges slide a little bit further north, we need to be cognizant of that, um, that we're keeping up with, with some of these native ranges. The biggest impacts we've actually seen have been through invasive pests. Um, like we used to grow and sell lots and lots of ash trees, and now we, we don't grow them at all. It's something we're definitely cognizant of. And uh, I've, I haven't noticed, just because I've only been involved with the, the business end of the nursery for about six years, I haven't been here quite long enough to see a, like a long-term observation on it, but, uh, yeah. yeah. And arguably you might not be feeling the pressure, uh, you know, and I wouldn't be able to explain that climatologically, but, uh, yeah, where you are in, in central Jersey, it, it may not be a thing yet. I, I think too, that your soil, your soil warms up much quicker than the Pennsylvania soil does anyway. So that has always made New Jersey unique unto itself that they were able to grow things that we couldn't grow and it would take maybe another two weeks for Pennsylvania to catch up to what you were having. So you always hit the market first with produce, for example, 
or um, other things that would um, carry the market until Pennsylvania came through with their their crops because the soil is much colder here. And having warmer soil would definitely equate to different types of plants. And you do have a, such a different array of plant palette than we do here in Pennsylvania. And, and that's a great observation. And one we, we kind of joke around about at the in the office a lot is the plant palette in uh, New Jersey, where we're in the coastal plain of New Jersey, or inner coastal plain, and then you get to the Delaware River. We're we're only maybe five or six miles from the Delaware River before you get into Pennsylvania. But once you cross the river, it's completely changes the the plant palette, and it's amazing. You start driving through just uh, west of Philadelphia, how how much different the the ground looks. And uh, if you were to put a plot like everywhere that we've sold or had an order go in the last probably even ten years you'd see a, a heck of a lot in New Jersey and then all the way down to Virginia and even like coastal North Carolina and all the way up into Massachusetts and even going up into Maine, kind of following the coast. But you would not see very many that were much west of Philadelphia. Uh, once you get west of there, it's really the, and it's because what we grow is a plant palette for that coastal plain. And once you get into really not that far inland, just over the Delaware River, that plant palette changes enough that it doesn't match up with what we grow. There's still a lot of crossover, but there's different plants that dominate and and we don't always and grow And of that course, stuff. and the tree palette is, is so unique onto Jersey and the uh, the pine barrens are are so classic uh, of, a, of a unique system. You know, we would take our students there from university so that they could actually see that and study it and um, walk through it and see what differences there are and how many different species you'd find in a, a cross-section uh, of the woodland. Just fascinating. And even animal uh, habitat that's so different than ours here in Pennsylvania. Do you have to do a lot with uh, protecting the property from deer? We haven't. A lot of the nurseries around here do. Uh, we're kind of at a stage now where we might have to. Basically what happened is one of our neighbors has a big farm and then uh, on the other side of that is a big tree nursery. Well, they put in a rails to trails. The county put in a rails to trails in between those two nurseries. So where you had a patch of woods where there traditionally were a lot of hunters, uh, you couldn't have hunters there now. So now we're seeing deer make the, the travel over because they like our fresh trees and saplings <laughs> over on our side of the fence. <laughs> But uh, so we've been like, oh, maybe we need to put up a fence now. But for as long as we've been here, we hadn't had any damage up until about two years ago. Yeah, from what I remember with different presentations over the years, your herd population is gigantic. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, we've talked to the folks who are doing the, the surveys and they were saying where we are is about 125 deer per square mile up from uh, what they project the, the real carrying capacity of our, our area would be is like 12 to 15 or 10 to 15 deer per square mile. And we're at 125. There's areas in the state, I think are as high as 300 deer per square mile. And, uh, and across the, I've heard, I want to say it's around Washington, DC. They even have like 400 deer per square mile in some of these suburbs of, of Washington, DC. And uh, Duke Farms, which is an awesome place as well, did some search surveys and where they basically fenced off their entire preserve and then got as many deer out as they could and had sharpshooters come in to get rid of as many deer. And now they're 
down to below that threshold of, of 10 deer per square mile. They were finding, once you hit 30 deer per square mile is when you start to see the native vegetation could keep up with the deer browse. Uh, once you got below 20 is when it would regenerate faster than the deer could actually eat it. But that's probably the number one threat to, and I'm, I'm thinking about it, maybe it's, it's one of the top threats. I don't want to say it's the number one threat to, uh, to native plant populations in, in New Jersey and across much of the East Coast is deer. And developers. Uh, <laughs> and developers is the other one. So, yeah, because with, with developers. Yeah, you <laughs> pave over this place. You don't get it back. With deer, okay, you can get rid of the deer and eventually it'll come back. And um, I know a lot of the hunters in New Jersey are, are really upset right now because there's a disease, and I don't remember what the acronym stands for, but it's called EHD. And uh, our deer population has definitely... Uh, taken it, it kills deer very quickly. Is that the wasting disease? It's not chronic wasting. Um, that's a lot worse. But uh, uh, this EHD will kill the deer population pretty quickly. The rough estimates I've been hearing are like 50% reduction in the population or even up to 80% reduction. Uh, they won't know until the leaves are off the trees and they can start doing infrared uh, surveys with drones. But uh, even you take 80% of 125, we're still over that threshold that we're supposed to be at. I think it's a good thing because it's going to, now it's keeping that population low. It's a, a major economic impact on our farmers. It's not just about native plants. It's it's hurting landscapers. It's hurting people who live in developments because they can't plant anything with the deer lead at all. But uh, it's, right. there's a researcher who does a lot of research on deer uh, named Dr. Jay Kelly, who works for Raritan Valley Community College. And he said, and he, he's a guy, he's, you, you talk to him, he's a hippie. He's someone who you think would be out there with the protests, like protesting hunting and all that. And I think he might have at one point, but he was saying how this is really, the deer overabundance is a, a animal rights issue. And when the deer are eating all these native plants, now you have uh, a white oak seedling, when it gets mature, is gonna support 400 and some different butterflies and caterpillars. Well, if that gets nipped off when it's really little, you're taking all that food away. And some of these insects have really complex relationships and they need that plant to survive. If that cottonwood or, or whatever isn't there, they don't exist. And uh, the deer overabundance is really taking away a chance for a lot of these other animals to exist. So that's a big, big issue in, in our neck of the woods. What do you see down the road for your company as far as demand in trees what are you going to create a shift or are you going you're going to have other things besides local natives so that you might be providing something for other other areas as well i don't think so just because like like i mentioned in the very beginning we were one of the first kids on the block and now there's dozens and dozens the space for native plants is just growing and growing i don't know if there's a cap on how many people can be growing native plants just in our region. My wife and I have a side business where we, we grow a lot of these, or I should say grow a lot of these plants. We basically take our Pinelands nursery availability and I throw it online and people will buy those plants retail. Since Pinelands nursery is wholesale only, they can then buy those plants retail and I'll throw them in a box and, and ship them wherever they are in New Jersey. And we get some orders out in the Midwest just because people can't find this stuff. I'll have people who are angry that are in California and they want some plant. And I'm like, well, I, I can't ship it to you. And they're upset because they can't find it anywhere else. Was Now it's it's going crazy, but the effort it took was just taking 
our availability and putting it on a website and I'm barely get home during the spring just because I'm working at the nursery from like 7.30 to, to 4.30. And then um, from 4.30 to like 11 o'clock at night, I'm loading up boxes and responding to emails for the retail side of things. There's just so many people who are getting interested in, in native plants that, yeah, I don't, I don't know if the demand is gonna shift enough for us to make a move. When you ship out of the state, what kind of agricultural requirements do you have to meet with the USDA? So we basically look at the existing quarantine zones for like gypsy, or gypsy moth, Japanese beetle, and we don't ship outside of there is just kind of been our rule. We have enough demand inside of that radius that it's just easier not to bring in inspectors to inspect that kind of stuff. We've talked about it and said, because you feel bad there, people want plants. And this is for, for Pinos Nursery too, but it's, we don't, we don't ship anything into Canada for the same reasons, just because you have to get the inspections and, and all that. And I talked to some other nurseries and they think we're crazy that we don't because there's a lot of money to be made up there, but uh, we're small enough that it's, it's easier to just not deal with it at this point. I really enjoy what you guys are doing on YouTube. And I just wonder um, with what you and Fran are doing, not only with the Pineland Nurseries YouTube, but you go a little deeper with your whiteboard ecology presentations. Uh, what kind of feedback are you getting from your audiences and clients? And why should other horticulture businesses maybe think about doing something similar? I guess we started our YouTube a long time ago, but we really made it active about a year and a half ago. But uh, we've we've had our Facebook, probably like everyone has since Facebook came out. And it was really just a way to stay connected with not even our customers, but our community. It was a way we've, my parents have lived here for 35 years or so. I had, I grew up here. I have classmates and I even, I was at a wedding last weekend. And I had a classmate who said, you know, I didn't even, I'd been to your nursery. I hung out with you as a kid. I didn't even know what you guys did and how impactful. I just thought you grew plants until he read a, an article that was written about us that we shared on our Facebook page. And he's like, I didn't realize you did that kind of stuff. That's really cool. So that was the reason we got involved with a lot of the social media. And, uh, and my parents being older, they didn't believe in it at first. Um, my, my mom probably did, but my dad definitely did. He thought it was a waste of time. And, uh, and then until he started going to church or you go to a township type meeting and someone said, Hey, I saw that video that you guys put up, or I saw that article you shared. That's really cool. And then he started really come around. Now he's telling me, Hey, you should post something about this. You should post something about that. About two years ago, we recorded, no, three years ago, we recorded a video with a fellow named Billy Young who's a really respected ecologist and restoration ecologist in our area on uh, ecological succession with the idea of saying, hey, let's bring in some of these ecologists, horticulturalists, people we know that we're affiliated with and we're friends with and have them do little whiteboard videos kind of explaining a basic ecological topic or horticultural topic that they know about. And we had grand plans to have one on why need to plant wildflowers for bees and all these little things and just little doodle type things. And uh, I recorded it, and then my computer crashed, and I could never edit it. <laughs> so uh, it sat on uh, like a separate hard drive for a little over a year, and then I finally got a new computer that I could work and, and edit it on and uh, put it up, and it, a lot of people liked it. So I've made a couple, and Fran, our, our sales manager, who's also from Princeton Nurseries, uh, he, he made a couple. The idea was to have people in, but then that's when the pandemic hit, so we couldn't have people come in. So we have, I've been meaning to get back and start making more of the whiteboard ecology videos. 
because it is, I think, a really important topic. A lot of folks don't understand some of what we would consider basic ecological principles or horticultural principles. And this is an easy way to just break down a small little snippet and explain it. Like what is, what is the actual definition of a native plant? What qualifies a plant as invasive? We talk about a little bit about why cultivar is different than a species plant. And um, Bill Young did one on ecological succession in like seven minutes. So there's a lot of cool topics. Then it became finding the time. Our YouTube's kind of morphed into uh, some little videos of what is going on at the nursery. Like we found a turtle in the parking lot. So I'm like, oh, let's record it and put it on there. We found. I only just found out that uh, like, so a lot of people know that black swallowtail butterflies are attracted to like parsley and, and fennel and those kind of things. I was like, well, it's a native insect. So it has to have a native host plant, I would assume. So I did a little Googling and found out, oh, it's uh, Zizia aurea, which is golden Alexander, is the native host plant. So on my little kitchen garden I have outside our, our, on our porch, well, I found a bunch of black, black swallowtail butterflies and I picked all 10 of them off and I moved them to a Zizia that we had to grow in our landscape. And I just took a little video of it and that got a couple hundred views just putting little things like that up. We're kind of running out of time here, but we did want to ask you what is your favorite tree or group of trees that resonate with you, Tom? The, the one that... Uh, we hear the most that I also agree with is our oaks. Well, I guess the number one reason is I think they look awesome, uh, especially white oaks and red oaks, those big, big, we have one in our town that's like 300 some years old. And it's the, actually the town insignia is this, this oak they call the Keeler Oak. And then uh, another thing we've been doing with the nursery is giving out to part of Rutgers graduation at our local high school and elementary school, we give out Northern red oaks for their graduations as the thing to take back and you little seedling like that that tall they plant it as a like a symbol of this is a, a key phase in their life and things are going to keep growing from here but um and the northern red oak is the state tree in new jersey the house i moved into actually had two the person who lived there before had two kids that were about 15 years older than i am so when we moved in they had some that were really big and established already which is a nice little head start for me the Bigger reason is that they support so many different species of Lepidoptera. And that's where Dr. Doug Calamy really has been doing a lot of his research and saying, if you want to really make a big impact in a, I don't want to say a little space, but with one thing, that's what you would plant because it just helps. And then going past all the insects, it's a primary food source for deer, primary food source for, for turkeys, bears. There's all sorts of things that require squirrels, obviously that utilize that plant. It, it provides in so many different different ways. That's a good answer. I watch the deer across the street from me every every day <laughs> at this time, eating the red oak acorns. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, thank you so much for being on our show this afternoon. We really appreciate it. We wish your, you and your company the very best continued success. Yeah, thank you so much, Eva, Eva and Hal, for having me on. This was really, really a lot of fun. It is. You're a natural. Good luck with all your social media initiatives. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Good to meet you. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank <laughs> you.
Thank you.